Normally, it goes without saying that each week you can look on the news and something bad has happened. Uh, the news is sensational in many ways, and, and so it thrives off of these, keeping us in a constant state of fear and panic. So we're tuning in again and listening to what, what else might be happening. And, and oftentimes we find ourselves in between uh, adopting a, a chicken little attitude and an Elijah complex. Chicken little said, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And Elijah said, woe is me, for I'm the only one left. I'm the only Christian left in the world. And oftentimes we find ourselves oscillating between those two things as we scroll through Facebook or we watch the news. And at times we need a God's eye perspective on the events of our lives, on the events that are happening on the world stage. We need God to show us what he is accomplishing. We need to hear, we need to sing Psalm 2 to remind ourselves that God is in control. That despite all the difficulties that might be facing us as the people of God, despite oppression or persecution, despite our present suffering in our own lives, God is the sovereign Lord who is over all. And so as we sing Psalm 2, it builds our confidence and trust in the Lord. Why? Because he has made his son king. Jesus is that son who is king and is ruling and reigning even now. And I I dare say that the church needs to spend more time thinking, meditating on the idea that Jesus is king, on his office of a king. So this morning, if you're able, please turn with me to Psalm chapter 2. Psalm 2, we are continuing our study this summer through the Psalter. We began a couple weeks ago looking at Psalm 1, and we're picking up where we left off, looking at Psalm 2. It's also printed for you there in your bulletin. The psalmist says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is sitting at your right hand, 
even now ruling over the nations. And Father, in the troubles that we face as we look out at the world and the nations that rage against your reign, may we be reminded as we consider this psalm this morning that Jesus is King and that all those who take refuge in him are blessed. We ask, Father, for hearts to receive your word, for we pray this in Jesus' strong name, and amen. Amen. You'll notice that this psalm breaks out evenly into three parts. The first is a question that the psalmist asks. Why is it that the nations are united together against the rule of the Lord and against his anointed? And then that question offered by the psalmist is answered by the Lord. And then finally, the Lord warns those nations that are in rebellion against him. And so as we look more closely at this psalm to see the king who has been installed on Zion, who is ruling even now, let us consider this question that the psalmist asks. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Remember that uh, not all of the psalms have historical references. That is, we don't always know why they were composed or, or what was the reason for their composition. We know that they were written to be sung in the corporate worship of the people of God. But they came out of personal struggles. We think of the life of David. We think of what it took for him to become king. How he was persecuted by King Saul. How he was even driven out of exile to the Philistines. And how for many long years in the wilderness he waited, even after having been anointed as the king, to take his kingship. And throughout the rest of his entire reign of 40 years, he never saw a day of peace. He was constantly at war, not only within Israel, but also by the surrounding nations, the Canaanites, and especially the Philistines and the Amorites, as they constantly joined forces together to rage against the king. Notice that is. It is a concerted effort. The nations, the peoples, the kings, they join their forces together. No individual would be foolish enough to try to overthrow David. No individual would be so bold and brash to try to overthrow the rule of God. But you'd be surprised when we come together as a people what we think we can accomplish. When we band together in mobs, we believe that we are lawless and we can do anything. And that's what, we, what, that's what we find here. We find a mob united to try to overthrow the rule of God. And of course, if you, if you are trying to overthrow the rule of God's anointed, then you are trying to overthrow the rule of God over you. So an attack on David is attack on God himself. And so it is with an attack on God's people. And notice what, they, know what they, notice what they say. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They, that is the nations, these people, these kings that are united together to oppose God, they do so because they do not want His yoke on them. The bonds, they're described like a yoke that is used for ox to plow. When you put that yoke on him, it harnesses all the power of the ox to plow. And they say, we don't want the yoke of Yahweh. 
We don't want to be bound by him. We don't want his cords upon us. We find Yahweh to be oppressive. We find his rule to be one that we do not want to submit to. Notice that that in this casting of the bonds, they they are united together against the Lord's anointed. And God is showing his covenant solidarity with his people through the anointed. First, the Lord's anointed is a king who is supposed to rule under the authority of God. God has given him that right as a king. That's what that anointing signifies. As he is empowered by the Spirit to rule under God. And secondly, the authority of the Lord's anointed to command obedience and to punish disobedience despite what the nations might character it, that's actually a blessing. When he punishes evildoers, when he cleanses the land of evildoers, when he encourages and promotes righteousness, that is a blessing, not a yoke that we should want to be throwing off. And in fact, what what inevitably happens when you throw off the rule of God is you get a a flood of tyrannical and oppressive rule that will follow. God's yoke, God's law, the thing that binds us as the people of God is easy and light. It is a yoke that leads to blessing. It is not oppressive and tyrannical. But when we overthrow God as ruler, we end up, it's like a vacuum and it must be filled. And so tyrannical leaders and Oppressive regimes, they rise up. And and what characterizes these kinds of regimes is is the amount of laws that they have. They they make more and more and more and more laws so that you you can't even keep track of if you are being obedient to them. At any one point, any one of us is probably guilty of some infraction, right? We don't know all of the laws that are being written. They're hidden and and, the, and they, there are so many of them. But God's law is just ten commandments. It's easy and light. It's not a burden. It's a blessing to the people who submit to it. But the nations won't have any of it. And it's not just the nations, right? We find that even within our own hearts, that there are aspects of our lives that we don't want to be under the yoke of the Lord. We don't want to be bound by God. We wall ourselves off. We compartmentalize our life. We say, not there. Yes, you're Lord here, but you're not Lord there. I'm going to keep that. That's my precious. It's not just the nations. We want Jesus as a Savior, but do we want Him as Lord? And are we willing to open up the entirety of our life to His rule over us? And before we get any further in this Psalm. I want to I want to make a few comments just as we begin to work through the Psalms to show that we are to see in these Psalms that they are Christ centered, that they are centered around Jesus Christ. And that and I don't mean just Psalm two, but I mean the entire Psalter. I mean all of the Psalms. Many of the Psalms are written by David, and David functions as a type of the Messiah. His life, the events of his life, often foreshadow events that will take place in the life of Jesus Christ. And we find the prayers of David on the lips of Jesus in his triumphs and in his sufferings. And these hymns, these 
hymns that are sung are also prayers that are to be prayed. And they not only speak of Christ, they also give us an inspired look at the hymns that Israel sung. Hymns that Jesus himself sung. Bonhoeffer, in his book, Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible, he he says it this way. According to the witness of the Bible, David, as the anointed king of the chosen people of God, is a prototype of Jesus Christ. What befalls David occurs for the sake of the one who is in him and who is to proceed from him, namely Jesus Christ. The same words that David spoke, therefore the future Messiah spoke in him. Christ prayed along with prayers of David, or more accurately, it is none other than Christ who prayed them in Christ's own forerunner, David. When David is praying, Christ is praying. Because Christ is in David, and David is in Christ. How is it possible that a human being and Jesus Christ pray the Psalter simultaneously? It is the incarnate Son of God who has borne all human weakness in His own flesh, who here pours out the heart of all humanity before God, and who stands in our place and prays for us. He has known torment and pain, guilt and death more deeply than we have. Therefore, it is the prayer of the human nature assumed by Christ that comes before God here. It is really our prayer. But since the Son of God knows us better than we know ourselves and we truly, and was truly human for our sake, it is also really the Son's prayer. It, becomes, it can become our prayer only because it was His prayer first. End quote. You see, David is Jesus' prototype. He foreshadows Jesus, and the Psalms were on the lips of Jesus when he is, makes his triumphal entry. And, and as, they, as to loud hosannas as they sing together Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and Psalm 22 is on his lips as he dies on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Over and over again. The psalms become the prayers of the people of God. They become our songs that we sing because they inform the way that we, uh, the, the, the attitude that we are to have in our relationship with God. And so is this a messianic psalm? Of course, sure. It is talking about the Lord's anointed. It's talking about David, who is more accurately pictured in Jesus Christ. So it's not just that the nations rage against David. They also raged against Jesus. The nations joined themselves together to assault the Lord's anointed. You can think about uh, that episode in Acts, which is recounted twice and also in Galatians, when Paul is persecuting the church and he's on his way to Damascus to persecute the church that is gathered there. And he has letters authorizing him to do this. And as he makes his way to Damascus, he's confronted by the Lord Jesus Christ in a blinding light. And and the Lord Jesus says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? I don't know exactly what Paul thought at that moment, but, but maybe he thought, I'm not. I'm persecuting this sect. I'm trying to, I'm trying to snuff out this false religion. But Jesus is so identified with people when he said, Paul, are you persecuting me? Paul is persecuting the Lord Jesus when he assaults the church of God. Jesus 
warns us not to be surprised that the world hates us. Because they hated him. And we are his. We're in him. So we should expect that the nations will continue to rage against us. That the peoples will continue to unite themselves against in opposition to the church of Jesus Christ. And so it is that these words form the prayer after having just been released from being beaten in the early church in Acts chapter 4. Listen to how the saints in the early church responded and how the words of this psalm form their prayer. It says in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, By the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the same name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, The place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You see, the saints experienced persecution and what do they immediately think of? Psalm 2. And they begin to cry out to the Lord and that psalm was on their lips. Why? Because they'd probably sung it since they were little kids. Because they knew that the Gentiles would unite themselves together to rage against the Lord and His anointed. And that, for, that informed not only what they were praying back to God, but how they viewed the events of Jesus' life and death. That truly, it was fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. There we see Pontius Pilate and Herod, Jew and Gentile, united together. Those things are never united together. But in that moment, they're united together to rage against the Lord's anointed. And they, to destroy Him. To burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And so we see that at that moment, the early church is saying, we see that. That's what happened. And it's not just that it happened to Jesus. It just happened to us too. We were just beaten and persecuted. And now we see that that psalm applies to us as well. That we are in the beloved. And what befalls him befalls us. And therefore the promises of this psalm are also true for us. It's appropriate then when we suffer for the cause of Christ to take up the question of this first stanza asking, why? As we sing and we pray, why? Why do the nations rage? Why is it that people rebel against what is so good for them? Their creator. 
And that is what God... And, and we pray and we remind ourselves what the psalmist says next. And that is what God thinks and does about the nation that's in rage and in subordination. What does God think about this? When the nations are raging, they're united together to oppose Him. How does He respond? Well, notice in verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. He laughs at them. And I I get this image in my head. You know, as fathers, uh, one of the blessed privileges of fatherhood is slap boxing your sons. Right? You're much bigger than them. Sometimes you can step on their feet and they can't get away. Or you can just stiff arm their head and they're swinging. They can't reach, right? And that's kind of what we got here. It's laughable if sometimes they're so tenacious. They actually believe that they can take you. And that's what's happening here. The Lord laughs at them. It's so laughable that the nations think that they can oppose God. That they, the creature, could unite themselves together against their creator. And say, we, we want to throw off your rule. And the Lord looks down from heaven and He laughs at them. And He mocks them and derides them. That's what it means to hold them in derision. It means to mock or jeer them. And I picture, you know, that, that, really, um, that really young boxer who's very full of himself, you know. And right before the match, he's, he's matched up against the champ who's a pro who's older, right? He's wise. He's not talking a bunch of trash. That young guy is, right? And then he gets in the ring and he's dancing all around. He's showing his footwork and he's pumping the air. And then, boom, one hit from the the champion and the young guy's out. And you know, as they're holding their arms up and stuff, the old guy says, you should have had a little bit more humility before you run off your mouth like that. That's what the Lord is doing. He's holding them in derision. He's mocking them. So that's all you have? That's all you got? That's nothing. That's nothing compared to what I can do. And how different is that from our, from our own reaction to when we see the nations united together to oppose the Lord? Our, our often reaction is what Elijah said. We run off into the wilderness and we hide. And we think, I'm the last Christian there is. We look out at the events of our world and we fall into despair. But if we remind ourselves, as this psalm does, that when the Lord sees the worst threats that humanity can summon together, what's his response? He laughs. He laughs. But he doesn't just laugh. Verse 5 is, a, is what we call a parallelism. That much of the Psalms are filled with these. One line will explain another line. So when he says, He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, speak and terrify are parallel along with wrath and fury. So when God speaks to them, he's terrifying them with the fury of his wrath. One line makes the other line more understandable. Or it heightens it. So it's more forceful. Verse 5. God speaks to them. And it is terrifying what he says. 
He speaks to them in the fury of His wrath. And He says something very specific. And, and, and it's important that we keep in mind that God is speaking to them. And it, we get in the same uh, idea when we read through Psalm 29. For God's speaking is His acting. Psalm 29, the psalmist says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. And then listen to how it describes the voice of the Lord when it speaks. What happens? The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. And the Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. And He strips the forests bare. And in His temple all cry glory. And the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. You see how the voice of the Lord, when He speaks, it is His acting. When He speaks, the cedars break. He rides over the waters. The waters are are a symbol for the chaotic nations. The nations that are in rebellion against God. Is God concerned about that? No. He rides over the flood. He sits enthroned as king over the waters. And when He speaks, His word is accomplished. It does what He says. His voice thunders and flashes forth flame. It breaks the cedars. But notice, notice in Psalm 2 what the Lord speaks. What is it that he speaks that terrifies them in the fury of his wrath? He says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And at first we're kind of disjointed. We're kind of thrown back like I was expecting you to say, that you were going to break the cedars or that you were going to crush them in some way. How is, how is this speech good news? How is it good news that God is going to speak to the nations? I have a king and I have set him on my holy hill on Mount Zion. How is that? How is that God's answer good? How is that a a response to the nations united together to oppose him. Well, first, Zion, it's important that we realize that Zion is a physical place in Jerusalem, but it's it's more symbolic for the very center of the world. It's the place where God rules from. It's where the law goes forth from in Isaiah. And it's the place that God will draw the nations to come to. It's the place where he has set his king. And it's not just a physical location because it's also a heavenly location. And the king, the king noticed that he, he responds in verse 7. He responds to this statement, this speech that the Lord has said, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Then the psalmist responds and says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Adam was the son of God. 
Matthew makes that clear in his genealogy of Jesus. So was Israel. Israel was a son. God sent Moses to say to Pharaoh, let my son go so that he may worship me. And so was David. When God made a covenant with David, he said this in 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. I shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Notice that in verse 7, this verse is quoted or alluded to over eight times in the New Testament, all applied to Jesus Christ, many of them in his baptism. And the New Testament authors see this as being fulfilled in Christ. Jesus was not just born a king. He becomes king through his death and resurrection and his ascension to the Father. There he is installed as king. So we can say Jesus was, he was born king, but he had to earn that kingdom. He had to earn it through his obedience. And the Father sets his king on his throne in the heavenly Zion to rule over all the nations. The answer to why do the nations rage, how does God respond to that? The answer is that God responds by sending Jesus, his son, to be king and to conquer and to rule over us as a king, to defend us, to subdue us and draw us to himself. The nature of Christ's rule is as a son ruling on behalf of his father. The kingship of Christ is is perennially in danger of being neglected or misinterpreted. The larger catechism is, is helpful when it asks, how does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself, giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them, and bestowing saving grace upon his elect and rewarding their obedience and correcting them for their sins preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies and powerfully ordering all things for his own glory. And also in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. See, I fear that we, we like the mercy and the forgiveness. We like to contemplate the, the office of a priest Think about how God is our mediator, that he propitiates the anger and wrath of God who is forgiving and merciful to us. We, we often don't consider that Christ is bestowing saving grace and rewarding obedience and correcting us from sin and his, has given his church officers and censures for that very purpose. We're we chafe against authority. We don't like to be under anyone's authority, even if it's Christ. All authority is derived from God. And, and of course, we press the crown rights of Christ over every area in his wide dominion, proclaiming his redemption as far as the curse is found. 
and the curse covers everything, so our work must cover everything. So we bear witness to the, to, the, to the fact that Christ is king. And as grace does not obliterate nature, but it restores it, so the heavenly session of the Lord Jesus restores order to the world that is disordered through sin. Nothing works the way it's supposed to. But Jesus is in the process of restoring that order, of making all things new. This he does as a king. Remember, the kingdom of God is not merely a place, but it is the people of God under the rule of God. It is where hearts have submitted themselves to the Lord Jesus to obey Him. And that rule is mediated differently in the different spheres of authority. It is, it is curtailed and limited to each jurisdiction. This I am indebted to Abraham Kuyper and his idea of, of sphere sovereignty. But God continues to rule through His Son, Jesus, in these different spheres. You could say there are three, the state, the church, and the family. And God's rule is mediated differently in each of those spheres. In the state, the, the magistrate is given the sword to enforce justice, to promote what is good, but to punish those who are evil. But he dare not usurp for himself the authority that is given to the church. He cannot rule in the church he cannot force someone to be baptized. He is, has, his authority is bounded by the sphere in which he occupies. And this is the same in the church. In the church, God has given to his officers the keys of the kingdom to bind and to loose, to open and to shut. They have the power to declare that sins are forgiven. They have the authority to speak on behalf of Christ, to declare your sins are forgiven you because of Jesus Christ. They also have the authority to say, your sins are not forgiven you, and you are shut out of the kingdom of God. But they may not bear the sword. They may not execute God's justice in his vengeance. Their authority is ministerial and de- declarative. They speak on behalf of Jesus Christ. And so it is with the family. The home is, is to be ordered according to the authority that God has given to the heads of households. They are to lead their families, and God has given them the rod and reproof to teach their children, to love and nourish their wife with the word. God has not given the husbands the authority of the church or of the state. His authority is bounded. He has limits. And in and through all of these, the psalm, too, is teaching us what is taught in Revelations 11.15. The kingdom of of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And Jesus is. The nations are already his, but there's something of the already but not yet. Yes, Jesus is king, and God has given him the nations. Notice, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God has given all to his Son. There is no sphere of this world that is not under the sovereign control of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet there are still enemies that need to be put under His feet. There are still people who need to be brought under the sovereign sway of the call of the gospel and subdued not to worship and serve Christ. There is already the fact that Jesus is ruling and reigning and yet at the same time 
we see that not every sphere is brought under his authority. And the church continues to extend the reign of Christ in our testimony of the gospel. As we bear witness, we tell everyone, Christ is Lord. Christ Jesus is Lord. That is the message that we proclaim and we call the nations to bow the knee and accept that Christ is Lord. Psalm 2 ends by answering the question, how should the nations respond in light of the truth that Jesus is King? And this really is the application of this. And I'll go quickly. They, they warned the nations, be wise and be warned, O kings. How should you, be re- how should you be respond that Jesus is King? How should you respond to the good news that the Lord has set His Son on Zion to rule? It's a call to the nations that rage against the Lord to come and serve the Son, to pay homage to the Son, to take refuge in the Son. To serve the Son, you see in verse 11, to serve is to worship. And the, the operative mode is fear. Not fear that's just, just frightening, but fear that's a proper reverence, understanding who we are and who God is. We are not God and we owe Him worship. We owe Him the attitude that's becoming of those who are created. We're not the Creator. So we reverence and we fear Him and we are in awe of Him. And we worship Him out of that attitude. It's not, hey, Daddy, what's up? It's our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. It is a personal God. He is drawn near to us in Jesus Christ. But it's not flippant. It's reverential and and with awe. Because we're coming and we're speaking with the Almighty God who speaks. Speaks and terrifies the nations. And so we, we serve the Lord with fear and we rejoice with trembling. We think of Paul there when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We work out our salvation because we consider that the Lord who is gracious and merciful to us is also our Lord and He calls us to obey Him. He calls us to kiss the Son. And that means that we pay homage to the Son as our Lord. Sometimes we reduce worship to Sundays. We, we reduce it to what's happening. Sometimes, even worse, we reduce it to the three songs before the sermon. Did you enjoy worship today means did you like the music? But worship is all of life. Your whole life is to be devoted to God in worship. And only specially so on the Lord's Day when the Lord gathers His people. But we are to worship all of our life is to be given to Christ. To kiss the Son is to pay homage to Him in every aspect of our life. It's not for us to compartmentalize and say, well, I know, yes, I I do worship you here, but I'm going to keep my porn problem. Yeah, I do worship you, but... I know that I have this problem with food, but that's off limits. You're not Lord over that aspect. I'll I'll, I'll obey you and everything else. And we, we don't say these things, but this is how we live before God. We wall ourselves off from Him. And we say, not that, but this. 
And, and look how feeble that is when we off. Is that paying homage to the Son? Is that kissing the Son when we open ourselves up and we allow Him to be Lord of all of it? Our whole life. Are there areas that He is not Lord over? There is only there is one truth that rings throughout Scripture. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You can either do it willingly or you will be forced to your knee. But every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. There is no one on the face of this planet who has ever lived who will not bow the knee and pay homage to Christ. But it will be either willingly because you know Him, because you have led to Him for refuge, or it will be because you are forced to. It is only those who have taken refuge in Christ that are blessed. And this, remember I said a couple weeks ago that this Psalm 1 and 2 form the introduction to the whole Psalter. The first one was about wisdom, about how, to li- how, how are we to live before God? What does it look like to be happy, to be the blessed man? Well, here in Psalm 2, we're asking, what does it look like to be the blessed nation? What does it look like to be the people of God that are blessed? It's those who take refuge in Jesus Christ. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. And that Him is the Son. Like being in the ark. If you want to pass safely through the flood, you have to be inside the ark. If you want to pass safely through the storms of life, if you want to pass safely to stand before the presence of God, then you must be in Christ. You have to have fled to Him for refuge. And refuge implies trust. Listen to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 37. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. But this is also a warning. Don't take refuge elsewhere. Psalm 18, 118, 8 and 9, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Singing Psalm 2 leads us to reflect on our loyalty. It is also reminds us that despite what it may look like to us, the Lord laughs at the wicked. For even in their most desperate attempts to band together, to overthrow the Lord and His anointed, they will never be successful. So as we sing, we gain confidence in the Lord, for He has set His Son as King. And since Jesus is King, we must seek refuge in Him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we give You thanks for installing Your Son as King In the heavenly Zion, we're grateful that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. Amen. And Father, as we contemplate the kingship of Christ and as we consider our own lives, as we sing this psalm, and it gives us confidence to trust in you, knowing that as the wicked rage, you laugh. And we wonder, 
Do we rage? Are there parts of our lives that we have cordoned off from you? Yes, we want Jesus as our merciful high priest, but do we want him as Lord and King? Oh, Father, may we come and bow and confess that he is our Lord, and may we give him all of our life. For we pray this in his strong name, and amen. Christ calls you in this meal to